Esther 2, you found it? All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that we can confess that we need you. Thank you, Lord, that it is your breath in our lungs. Thank you, Lord, that your love is vast as an ocean as we sang today. That you are our cornerstone. That you are our strength. Thank you for your word, our direction, our guidance in life. Or more than that, Lord, you are the word. and It is our salvation, Lord. Thank you. I pray, Father, as we study, as we open the word of God, and that you would open our hearts, Lord, that we would see just how much you care for those whom you created, those whom you make your own. What a joy. Uh, bless this time as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. We are trying to move through the book of Esther, not, not just because it reads fairly easily. It's a, if you sat down and read all 10 chapters from beginning to end, it would take you about 40 minutes, maybe half hour, 45 minutes, something like that. And it just flows very well. It's just a, a great story. And so, uh, and so we're going to move through it rather quickly. We'll cover um, three chapters tonight, and then uh, next week probably cover the rest of the book. And so we'll just kind of move quickly. But just to, as a reminder, as we set it up last week, as we went through chapter one, the events of the book of Esther occur between chapter six and chapter seven of the book of Ezra. We're talking uh, post-Babylon. We're talking people heading back to Jerusalem after the 70 years of rest that the land had. Uh, Zerubbabel is headed back already. And then as, we, as Esther kind of finishes up, that's when Ezra gets the commission to go back to the land. Um, and, and the book of Ezra focuses more on those who decided to stay there in Babylon. If you'll recall, as we went through the book of Ezra, there was a small remnant that God stirred the hearts of who chose to return to the land of Israel. Some, forget what the number was, 45 to 50,000 out of millions that opted to return back to Israel. The majority of the Israelites said, we've got family here, we've created businesses, we've built homes, we're rather comfortable here in Babylon, and so we'll choose to stay but the beautiful thing about God and the gracious thing about God is even though his people chose to stay there in the world, as it were, Babylon is always a picture of the world for you and I, they made their choice to lay in the bed of the, the world. God still loves them and still cares for the Israel, Israeli people. He, um, he made promises to them and he's going to uphold those promises even when it appears as though these people have turned their back on him. The book of Esther is interesting in that the name of God isn't mentioned at all in the entire book. Prayer is not mentioned at all. Worship is not mentioned at all. Faith is not mentioned at all in the book of Esther. And yet, it is evident that God's hand is upon the people of Israel as you read the story of Esther. There is no question that God is orchestrating the events during these 12 years of the book of Esther to preserve and care for those he promised to care for. So you'll recall last week we saw, it was the introduction of two of the main characters. We haven't yet been introduced to Esther. We'll get to that today. But it was the king, Ahasuerus, right? Who we know better and history knows better as Xerxes. King Xerxes, the Persian king. Uh, the one who, you know, tried to take it to Greece. His father was Darius. Darius went to Greece and had the battle, fell there at Marathon, came back, 
tried to lick his wounds and rebuild his army, and before he got his army built back up, he died. So now Sun is on the throne, and and Xerxes has the most powerful reign to date. His, His empire reaches farther than anybody's had reached thus far, as far as it said at the beginning of Esther, from India all the way to northern Africa, Ethiopia. And so 127 provinces under this one king's reign, a large number. So in between chapter 1, where we finished last week, and chapter 2, three years go by. That's the, I, I just love to pause and think about that for a minute, because we read, and if you read you know, the entire book of Esther, you just read it like it's one story. You don't think about the time that passes by. What were you doing in 2011, 2012 now? I don't know. Well, that was three years ago. That's how much time passes in between chapters one and chapters two. Day after day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, you know, normal mundane things. Things happen. People do things. Life happens. And and we don't have record of it. But these people, the characters that we're reading about, have lived three more lives. They've had three more birthdays. They've had people die. They've had people be, you know, been born into their families. Life happens. And one of the things that happened in between chapter one and chapter two is Xerxes does head to Greece. And the story that we're so familiar with, because they made such the the graphic movie about it, 300, the Battle of Thermopylae, happens. That's Xerxes taking it to Leonidas. Leonidas making his stand there with the 300 Spartans there at the Battle of Thermopylae, where he for days holds off the, they estimate, one million Persian soldiers. And he holds them for a time. It turns out it wasn't just 300 Spartans. There was about a thousand other, um, there were some thespians and some, I can't remember the other group that was there that were battling with them, but the Spartans were the soldiers that were at the front. Of course, Leonidas goes down in the battle. Xerxes makes a mockery of his body, desecrates um, uh, uh, Leonidas' body, presses on to Athens. Athens, by that point, had been evacuated because they knew that they were coming, um, and as he's doing that, the, 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 the navy that he had put together is, is moving to Salome, and they actually engage the Grecian navy and actually lose there. And because they lose that battle, their, their ground forces are weakened, and Xerxes has to tuck tail and head home. And so the, this is kind of where in our history, if you recall the, the, book, of Bab, or the book of Daniel, We're transitioning, if you would, from the arms of silver to the legs of bronze. Because the Greek empire is beginning to rise at this point, beginning to gain world power. The the, uh, Persian empire is beginning to fade off into the sunset, just the way God said it would. So that's what's going on. Um, And that kind of set things up. And and now we'll get introduced to some of the other uh, people in our story. So Esther chapter 2, verse 1, it says... After these things, after what things? Well, after what I just everything I just described to you. After these things, when the wrath of the king Ahasuerus subsided, he remembered Vashti. Oh, Vashti. What she had done and what had been decreed against her. So remember in chapter 1, he had put Vashti away because she chose to stand up to the king. He was having that 180-day festival party and he, he says, I'm going to 
make my wife a trophy and decides to ask her to come parade for all the people that he was trying to impress, and that doesn't go so well. She says no. So imagine as he's trying to rally the troops of 127 provinces, well, if the wife, if the wife of the king stands up to him, why, shouldn't, why should we go with this guy? If, if he can't even keep his own house in order, why should we listen to this guy? And so they, they try to spin things, and they try to figure out what to do, and, and, and King Ahasuerus brings in all his um, advisors, if you would, and this guy Mamukin comes in, and he says, you know what, she's created trouble not just for your house, but for all our houses. If my wife hears about the, what the queen did today, right? And that's what Mamukin's worried about, is that he's going to go home to a wife who's going to stand up to him. You need to issue a decree. You need to get this straight, king. You need to, we need to set the entire nation straight. And that's what happens. And, and Queen Vashti is put away. So three years go by. Xerxes goes out, loses in Greece, and comes home. And when he comes home, he's boo-hooing. And he remembers his wife Vashti. Oh, beautiful Vashti. wonder what she's up to, because she's been put away. And saddened by that. That word where it says his wrath subsided. That's the same word, uh, just to give you an idea, that is used in Genesis 8.1, where it speaks of the floods abating, the, uh, the floods receding. That's, so working, you know, the floods were going down and down and down and, and after Noah had been on the ark. And so that's the same idea of, of his wrath. They were, it was diminishing. It was going down. That's when he remembered Vashti. So... Verse 2 says, Then the king's servants who attended him said, Well, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, that they may gather all the beautiful young virgins to Shushan the citadel, into the women's quarters, under the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, custodian of the women, and let beauty preparations be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this thing pleased the king, you think? <laughs> and he did so. Yeah, that sounds pretty good. We're, we're, let's have a beauty pageant, right? That's, that's the idea here. Let's determine who is Miss Persia, 479 BC. Let's, let's parade a bunch of, of girls before me, and I'll pick which one I want to be my queen. You see, there's nothing new on TV, right? The, the, bachelor, or the bachelorette is no new idea here. It's been around since the days of Xerxes. As much as we don't even like the, the beauty pageants, sadly, this was a little even less, it was less civilized than that. It wasn't just come and parade before me and show me your talent and, and, you know, let me talk into a microphone and answer some questions. This was... Oh, I like her. I'll sleep with her tonight. And I'll I'll take her tomorrow night, and I'll take her the next night. And I'll use her for my pleasure, and then dismiss her. And that was the idea. They were were to become concubines of the king. In Shushan, in the citadel, it says in verse 5, there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. So 
This now is, is one of the main characters in the story. Mordecai is his name. That's his, not his Hebrew name. That's his Babylonian name. He was named after uh, the false god Mordek. Don't let the name fool you. He's got a heart after God. And this is, this is one of the main characters. Of course, Mordecai, the one who cares for Esther. It says in verse 6, Um, speaking of Kish, Kish had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captives who had been captured with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. So Kish was taken to Babylon in the third deportation, uh, second deportation, 597 BC. This is Mordecai, his relative, distant relative. So uh, generations have gone by. And it says in verse 7, And Mordecai had brought up Hadassah, that is, Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman was lovely and beautiful. When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So this is now the, the namesake of the book, Esther, the one we're speaking of. Her given name is Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle. If you know anybody named Esther, you can call them myrtle. I'm sure they'll love that. Esther is her um, name in, in there in Persia, probably um, it means star, but if it was probably given to her from the Babylonian false god Ishtar. Um, and so interesting that Mordecai was named after Mordek and Esther probably named after Ishtar. But she was a, a, an orphan. Uh, she was one who had lost her father and mother. And Mordecai wanted and loved her enough to care for her, to take her into his own house, to raise her as his own daughter, obviously older than her. They're cousins. It says that Esther was his uncle's daughter, so that makes them cousins. It says of her that she was lovely and beautiful. Interesting, they make a distinction there. Lovely and beautiful. It said of Vashti back in chapter 1 that she was beautiful to behold, beautiful to look at. But here of Esther, she was lovely and beautiful, perhaps speaking of more than just outward beauty, but inward beauty as well. Ladies, spend more time cultivating your inward beauty than your outward beauty. Because of sin... The outward beauty fails. It just does. For all of us. And so you can keep it up and you can do your best to keep it up, but ask Joan Rivers. Well, you can't ask Joan Rivers anymore, but ask Joan Rivers how that went. It's a losing battle, right? And so spend more time cultivating that which lasts forever, your inward beauty. So it was, in verse 8, when the king's command and decree were heard, and when many young women were gathered at Shushan the citadel under the custody of Hegai, or Hegai, or however you say it, Hegai, that Esther also was taken to the king's palace into the care of Hegai. He's the one caring for these women. Now the young woman pleased him. Speaking of Esther, now the young woman pleased him, that is Hegai, and she obtained his favor. So he readily gave beauty preparations to her besides her allowances. He went above and beyond to care for her. Then seven choice maid servants were provided for her from the king's palace. She gets people to women to care for her, and he moved her and her maid servants to the best place in the house of women. 
So as Esther now is chosen to come into this house, um, she has God's favor upon her, and she gains the trust and and favor of of Haggai. Haggai takes a liking to her. Um, It it pleases him. Uh, She obtains his favor, and he takes care of her. He gives her extra portions. He, 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 he provides more as far as the beauty treatments are. Um, and then he, he provides servants for her and moves her to a safe place there in the, the house of women. These, were, these are women that were going to be used and they understood what it was that was happening. And if they found favor with the king, then they were permitted to stay with the king. And so within the house, there would be often fights that would break out among the women There were often times that women would murder other women in this house because they knew that if there was less competition, they had a better chance. And that's why Haggai and other guys like him had to take care of the house. And he says, I like Esther. There's just something about her. Uh, She's she's pleasing. there's, There's something. And it was God's hand upon Esther's life that is what he recognizes. And so he takes her and makes a safe place for her provides more than than what was required of him. When God's hand is with us, His uh, favor is upon us. Think about Daniel and Babylon, right? The same idea. I'm not going to eat the king's meat. Just give me me mash and water for 10 days and, and, and see if things are better. And they turn out to be better. God's favor upon him. And, and Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego is, are elevated to positions. Think of, consider Joseph. Both in Potiphar's house, right? I mean, yes, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. Not the greatest situation in the world. But he goes and is, is into the house of Potiphar and quickly becomes elevated in the house. God's favor upon him until Potiphar's wife takes a liking to him. He opts not to sin in that way, wise man, and runs away from that. Because of that, he's then taken to jail where he meets a baker. Hey, remember me, he tells the baker. Remember me when he gets out. You're going to be fine. But two years go by. Sometimes we have to wait for the Lord to orchestrate things. Two years go by, the baker is wait, or the, the, Joseph is waiting there in jail. But suddenly, pa, uh, Pharaoh has a dream that he needs an interpretation of, and the baker's like, oh yeah, I remember. There's a guy. We, we're holding him up. Go get him. He'll tell you what your dream's about. And, and suddenly, Joseph is elevated again, not just to the house of Potiphar, but to the, oh, the whole of the land, the second most powerful man in the world at that time because there was a famine in the rest of the land. When God's hand is with us, favor is upon us. I'm not talking prosperity gospel here. It's just that God cares for those whom He loves. And Haggai cared for Esther because that's the way God wanted it. So verse 10, Esther had not revealed her people or her family for Mordecai had charged her not to reveal it. Esther being a Jewish girl, she opted not to tell anyone. It's not that she lied. That would be a sin. She just didn't reveal the truth. She she kept this information. No one knew that she was Jewish. And every day, Mordecai paced in front of the court of women's quarters to learn of Esther's welfare and what was happening to her. Think about that. Dads, think about your daughter is going to the house of the king to be used by the king. 
Well, you'd check up on her too, wouldn't you? You'd do everything in your power to make sure that she was safe. Did she make it through another night? Was there another fight in the house? That's Mordecai cares deeply for her. God continually watches over us like Mordecai watched over Esther. And so, sadly, uh, it's, it's hard to even talk about, but verse 12, each young's, young woman's turn came to go into, the king, into King Ahasuerus after she had completed 12 months of preparation. They call it a turn. Imagine that. According to the regulations for women, for thus there were days of their preparation apportioned six months with oil of myrrh and six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. So a whole year passes. You know, he, he's, he's remembering Vashti. Xerxes is remembering Vashti. Oh, I miss her. Oh, we'll set up a pageant for you. Give me a year to plan it. And they, and, they, and they spend a year on these ladies, getting them ready to, to visit the king. Husbands, consider that. We don't have it so bad, guys, do we? It took them a year to get ready. Guys, right? You with me? My wife, I love her, which means I'm going to talk about her now, right? She has this gift. it's the 10 minute gift the 10 minute gift it's amazing to me that if we're going out for an evening and I I say okay we're going to leave at 6 o'clock and it's 4 o'clock you have 2 hours to get ready guess how long it takes her 2 hours and 10 minutes amazing every time we'll leave at 6.10 if something comes up suddenly and we have 15 minutes to get ready, it takes 25 minutes. No matter how long I give her, it's always 10 minutes longer. It's a gift. I mean, like to the, to, I, could, I could set my clock by it. I love you. Aww. I love you because you don't take a year to get ready. Six months with oil of myrrh. They need to soften these girls up. These are desert girls, right? (laughs) That sun had baked them and they needed to soak in some oil for a while. Michelle's into um, essential oils right now. What what does myrrh do? Uh, We'd have to research that, but uh, six months with myrrh. Well, how about just to spiritualize it for a moment, right? One of the gifts given to Jesus at his birth was myrrh, signifying his death. Oh, that you and I would spend six months in myrrh, dying daily to ourselves, right? To soften our hearts. Six months with the oil of myrrh, softening up that skin, I guess. And then six months with perfumes, because it takes a while to get camel out, evidently. Six months with perfumes and preparations for beautifying women. (laughs) Eau de camel. Thus prepared, one year gone by, each young woman went to the king, and she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the women's quarters to the king's palace. It was her one night, it was a date, and she could take whatever she thought would be of benefit to her to please the king. In the evening she went, and in the morning she returned to the second house of the women, to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who kept the concubines. She would not go into the king again. 
unless the king delighted in her and called for her by name. So you had to make enough of an impression that the king would remember your name. It's just, it's, it's debase is what it is. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's taking something that God has created beautifully, sex, created for a husband and a wife, and, and taking it to its lowest form and taking someone created in the image of God and it's the ultimate lust using them for his own pleasure. So much so, or to the point that when she woke up in the morning, if, she, if he couldn't remember her name, she went to another house, the second house as it was called, where she would live out her days. Never to marry, never to have children. She was just a used piece of property. Consider the heartache, all because the king wanted a queen. Consider the heartache of this, these young women who spend a year getting ready for one night to be used and abused and thrown away. Consider the heartache of a father who saw his, his daughter ripped from his, his arms. This woman's in need of the service of the king. Consider the families broken as daughters are taken from their homes. Including Esther. But God can use even the heartache and the brokenness and the debased things of this world for His purposes, for His glory. So it says in 15, Now when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his daughter to go into the king, she requested nothing but what Hegai, the, the, Hegai, the king's eunuch, the custodian of the women, advised. And so he gives her advice on, on what the king liked. And Esther obtained favor in the sight of all who saw her. So as she goes to the chamber of the king, all who saw her, God, when God's favor is upon someone, it's evident to all. So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into the, his royal palace in the tenth month, which is in the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So we're talking December, January, 479 B.C. The king loved Esther. So God's favor is upon her because she's going to be elevated now. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she obtained grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins. So he set the royal crown upon her and made her queen instead of Vashti, exactly where God wants her to be. Then the king made a great feast, the feast of Esther. He throws a party for all his officials and servants, and he proclaimed a holiday in the provinces and gave gifts according to the generosity of a king. So this so, so gladdens his heart. This makes him so merry that he throws a party. Imagine that, the party guy, right? We read chapter 1. But he's like, let's have another party. And, he, and he's, he's so happy, he's so blessed by this, by Esther, that he proclaims a holiday, he gives gifts. Chances are they would have taken a break from paying taxes for a time. 
He would have released everybody from taxes for a time. He would have called off all the wars that they were involved in. There would have been a a time of peace during this holiday, this festivity, while everybody celebrated. He wanted everybody to feel the gladness that he felt by marrying Esther. That just made me think, we're going to sit down to a feast one day, right? With our husband. We are the bride of Christ. A feast like no other feast. A feast that has been declared by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And not only will all taxes be removed for all times, for he has no need of that, peace will be had forever and ever. There will never be war again, for we will be with him in peace forever. And then it says in verse 19, when the virgins were gathered together a second time, Mordecai sat within the king's gate. That meant he was an advisor, that he, he had privilege, right, and responsibility to the king. He had some sort of service to the king. That's what it meant to sit in the gate. The, the governmental decisions were made in the gate. It was, it was, they actually found the gate there in Shushan. In 1970, they excavated it. It was 130 feet wide. It was in the wall that was 90 feet thick. Lots of business happening in this gate, right? But that's where a lot of the decisions would be made. The, the, the trusted advisors of the king would sit in the gate. Court would happen within the gate. So like when Jesus says, you know, the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. He's not talking about literal gates. He's talking about the plans, The plans of hell are not going to prevail against the church. The the decisions that have been made in hell are not going to prevail against the church. And that's where Mordecai sat. Now Esther had not revealed her family and her people just as Mordecai had charged her, for Esther obeyed the command of Mordecai as when she was brought up by him. In those days, while Mordecai sat within the king's gate, two of the king's eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh, doorkeepers, became furious and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. So the matter became known to Mordecai, who told Queen Esther, and Esther informed the king in Mordecai's name. So this plan of treason arises between these eunuchs, Big Than and Teresh. Something happened, and he, they planned to lay hands, not in a nice way, on King Ahasuerus, Right? And and then Mordecai hears of it. He goes and tells the queen because she still respects him. Even though she's been elevated to this noble position, she still respects the man that took care of her. And when an inquiry was made into the matter, they check it out, it was confirmed. And both were hanged on a gallows. And it was written in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Everything was chronicled by the Persians. They wrote everything down. That's why it tells us that there. And that it was hanged on the gallows. And um, I forget what it says in the King James, but uh, it was uh, hanging on the gallows is not like rope hanging. Um, It it meant impaled. Um, The Persians didn't hang by rope. They impaled people. And so that's what happened to those two guys. So chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes who were with him. 
Okay, so now we have a new character, this guy Haman. If you know the story of Esther, Haman's going to stand against Mordecai, and that's going to be the, the crux of the matter. And he is the son of Hamadetha, the Agagite. We need to know who the Agagites are. Does anybody know who the Agagites are? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah, they're the same people. Yeah, the, yeah. so yeah, you're right on. Yeah, the, it's the people of Amalek, the Amalekites. They're, they're called Agagites here. They're the people, just as, the, as they came out, as the people came out of Egypt, they're the people that came up behind and, and took off the slow people. They picked off the slow, they took off the grandmas and the kids and the, you know, and, and God said, Wipe them off the face of the planet. But they didn't. And you'll recall Saul, as he rises to power, he was actually killed by an Amalekite. And so, you know, remember the whole Samuel, what's the bleeding of these sheep in my ears? Remember that story? That's the Amalekites. That's the Agagites. That's who we're talking about here. The Agagites always had something against the nation of Israel, and it continued to this day. Just to read the story uh, that Chuck wrote in his uh, commentary, just so we understand. The term Agagite is the term for the king used by the Amalekites, the descendants of Amalek, who was the grandson of Esau. In the scriptures, Esau was a man living after the flesh who despised the things of the spirit. He despised his birthright. He, He is the only man I can think of in scripture of whom it is declared that God hated him. But he hated God and the things of God. So he became a type of the flesh. And Amalek, the man after the flesh, and the Amalekites became a type of the fleshly side of us. The Amalekites were the ones who attacked Israel when they first came out of Egypt. They attacked the rear part, the weak, the sickly, and the aged. And they were defeated later by Joshua. They were the ones who attacked the children of Israel when they tried to come into the promised land from Kadesh Barnea and joined together with the Canaanites in driving them out. Later, they joined the Moabites in an an attack against Israel. When the Midianites filled the land at the time of Gideon, the Malachites joined them and covered the land like grasshoppers. They were perennial enemies of God's people, and God had declared that he would have war with Amalek from generation to generation. But God also declared the day... Um, would come when he would wipe out the remembrance of Amalek from the face of the earth, that Amalek would perish forever. God told Moses to write in the law when they came in and settled in the land of promise that they were to settle the score with Amalek because of the way they attacked the children of Israel in the wilderness. They were to go down and utterly destroy them and not spare them at all. Haman, the guy here, the Agagite, the enemy of God's people, the one who hated the people of God is a type of the flesh. Mordecai, on the other hand, becomes a type of God's people, the spiritual man, a type of the spirit. Thus, there is the warfare, the flesh against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And so that's who we're dealing with now, Haman. And Haman's bent, is going to be bent against Mordecai, and it's going to take on an even deeper meaning and understanding than that. So that's who we're dealing with, Haman. Do we like Haman? It's okay to boo. When we name, yeah, I mean literally, like it's when we when we read, you can boo. Okay, good. When we'll move on. So where were we? Two, three, two. 
And all the king's servants who were within the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. Boo! For so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage because Mordecai understood who Haman was. Then the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Now it happened when they spoke to him daily. They're trying to urge him, and he would not listen to them, that they told it to Haman. <laughs> Boo. Good. To see whether Mordecai's words would stand. Let's see if Mordecai's really intent on not bowing to Haman, or if this is just a thing. We'll tell Haman about it. For Mordecai had told them he was a Jew. So when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage, Haman was filled with wrath. He hadn't noticed it up to this point because he, maybe, it's okay. Uh, You know, maybe he, you know, there's a lot of people in the gate. He didn't notice Mordecai. Maybe Mordecai was short. Are you sitting or standing? I can't really tell. I don't know, but either way. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him, of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman, boo, sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. So, (laughs) this guy is hell-bent, using that in the proper context, over something so small. Haman has everything that he could ever want the, the king, the most powerful man on earth, raises him to a position. We don't even know how he got to this position. And, and he, has, he has wives. He has a ton of cash, as we're about to find out. He's got all kinds of... He has everything he wants. The people are bowing to him as he walks through, except one guy. You've seen dogs fight over a toy, right? Here, you can have this toy. She's playing with this toy, but I want that toy. Here you can have that. No, that toy's not good enough. I have to have the toy that she has. Dogs don't, they're not the only ones. Two-year-olds do it too. Right? So Haman sees one person. The one thing he doesn't have is the, the respect for Mordecai, and it sends him in a fury. Let's kill them all. He, he recognizes they're the Jewish nation. He, that's who Mordecai is. And he says, ah, let's just get rid of them all. What's he talking about when he says that? 15 million people. Let's eradicate 15 million people because one guy won't bow to me. From, in the whole province, from India to northern Europe or northern Africa. 15 million Jews at the time. That's prejudice, right? That's bigotry, right? That's, that's malice. That, that's what malice, that's the definition of malice. It's, it's when you, are, you have an ill will against another person that, that isn't even rational any longer. He projects his animosity against Mordecai onto all the Jews. And that's what prejudice is. is I've seen, I've had interaction with one of these types of people. And so I take that interaction that I've had and I put it on all of those people. That's prejudice. And Haman has the power to do something about it. 
So in the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is the lot, they're going to roll some dice, before Haman to determine the day and the month, until it fell to the twelfth of the month, which is the month of Adar. So they, they roll dice to see what day shall we execute 15 million people? And Haman, watch him. He's a, he's a master manipulator here. Watch what he does. He's a, he, he can't just execute 15 million people. He does have to at least run it by the king. He, he can't make that decree himself. So he says in verse 8, Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, so he's going to get the king's permission here, There's a, a certain people scattered and oh, dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are, well, they're different than ours uh, from all other peoples, and, and they do not keep the king's law. Therefore, it's not fitting for the king to let them remain. That's all he says. That's all he explains. He doesn't mention who the people are. He doesn't say the, the Jewish people, the nation of Israel. He doesn't say how many of them there are. He doesn't say what law they broke. This is one guy not bowing, which was a law of the king. But he, he's just like, we're going to get rid of them all. Completely ambiguous. A certain people, no mention of the name, doesn't keep the law, no mention of what law. Imagine what the king would say if he knew he was about to lose 15 million people's worth of revenue. No. That's a lot of cash to the king. Of course he would squash it. But he doesn't. He doesn't even ask. All the king needs to do is just sign this little old piece of paper. And I'll take care of everything else. That's what he says in verse 9. If it please the king, let a decree be written that they be destroyed. And I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who do the work to bring it to the king's treasury. Right? Haman's, Haman's a master here. Oh, you're a busy guy, king. Don't... Don't even worry about it. Just I'll take care of everything. I'll pay for it myself. I just let me take care of this problem for you. you just just turn it over to me and I'll handle it and you just go back to your party. Just just sign this little piece of paper right here. Right? He's willing to put up 10,000 talents of silver. That's crazy cash. Right? That's a, that's a boatload of cash. We don't think about that. I, I want to pause and think about that for a minute because I like doing math. 10,000 talents. A talent is 70 pounds. That's 700,000 pounds of silver that Haman is willing to fork over to the king in order to take care of executing 15 million people. I looked up how much silver is worth today. Not today, two days ago. $17.08 per ounce. $17.08 per ounce. It was down to $17 today. $17.08 per ounce. That's $273.28 per pound. 700,000 pounds of silver. 191296000 dollars that Haman's forking over in our, day, our money. He's like, oh, I'll take care of the bill. Oh, I, got, I, got, I think I got 191 mil in my couch of gold. Right? Remember solid gold couches last week. 
just sign this little paper. And the king does it. Verse 10, so the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman. Just do whatever you want, Haman. I trust you. The son of Hamadeth of the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Boo! Foolish on Xerxes' part. Big mistake that you would put that much trust in one of your subjects to be so trusting. Or, maybe he's apathetic. I got Queen Esther. I don't need anything else. I don't care about anything else. I don't know. And the king said to Haman, the money and the people are given to you. Do with them as you see. He's like, no, you don't have to pay for it. I got this. A little power struggle there. Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded to the king's satraps, to the governors who were over each province, to the officials and all the people to every province according to its script, and to every people in their language. It, it went out amongst the kingdom. In the name of King Ahasuerus it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring that the Jewish people were going down. And the letters were sent by couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, both young and old, little children and women, in one day, on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. So you, they're not going to need it anymore. Just take what they gave, what they have. And a copy of the document was to be issued as a law in every province and being published for all the people that they should be ready for that day. Signet ring, execution, wipe out the nation of Israel, 15 million people with the swipe of a pen. Remember, Israel is, in, is one of the provinces where Xerxes is ruling over. Wiping out every Jew known to man. 1 John 2.18, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come, by which we know it is the last hour. Haman, wanting to wipe out the Jewish people, an Antichrist. That's why Satan wanted to wipe them out, Right? If I can get rid of the Jewish line, then there will be no way for the Savior to come. And so he invests heavily into Haman. Gives him all he needs. But God's plan is greater. So verse 15 says, The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command, and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Shushan was perplexed. When Mordecai learned all that he had happened, all that had happened, he tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and ashes and went out in the midst of the city. He cried out with a loud and bitter cry. So they sign the paper and they sit down to drink. No big deal for us. Even the people of Shushan were wondering what was going on. Do they realize, does the king realize what he's done? Mordecai hears of the, what has happened. He sees the edict go forth, and he has the right response. He goes into mourning at this point. He's aware of the promises of God. 
It says in verse 2, He went as far as the front of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. You couldn't go into the presence of the king sad. He would kill you. Why would any of my subjects ever be sad? Right? And in every province where the king's commanded, king's commanded decree arrived, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. They, they recognize a day is coming when they're going to be eradicated. So Esther's maids and eunuchs came and told her, and the queen was deeply distressed. They told her that Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes. Then she sent garments to clothe Mordecai and to take his sackcloth away from him, but he would not accept them. Her concern was for Mordecai. Mordecai, why are you sad? You should, if the king hears of this, see, she didn't know. Elevated to a great position, yet she didn't know that what the edict that had gone out yet. She didn't know that the Jewish people were about to be eradicated. All she can see is that Mordecai is, for some reason, dressed in sackcloth, and, and to be sad in the presence of the king is a punishable by death uh, uh, thing. And so she says, here, put some clothes on. He, she, you can see the care that she has for this man that has cared for her for so long. It says in verse 5, Then Esther called Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, whom he had appointed to attend her, and she gave him a command concerning Mordecai to learn why and what and why this was. Go, Hathak, go, go talk with Mordecai. Figure out what's going on here. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square that was in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the sum of money that Haman had promised, $191 million, to pay into the king's treasury to destroy the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the written decree for their destruction, which was given at Shushan, that she might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and that he might command her to go into the king to make supplication to him and plead before him for her people. Mordecai is still a voice of authority in the queen's life, and he recognizes the position that has been given to her by God, as we're about to learn. Go. This is why you're here. Go. Beg for your people, Esther. So Hathak returned and told Esther the words of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and gave him a command to Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he has but one law, put all to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So she, she hears and understands what's happening, but she hasn't processed it all yet. And she says, I can't go before the king. I haven't been to see him in 30 days. Wonder what that's about. This is the queen. He hasn't, she hasn't seen him in 30 days. Wonder, is there a fight going on? Was there something happening? What? No, no clue given there. But everybody knows what the law is, that if you go into the presence of the king without him telling you to come here, that you die. She's like, I can't do that. I don't want to take my own life into my own hands. She hasn't processed through exactly what's going to happen. So they told Mordecai Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. So Mordecai, in his loving and kind and fatherly way, helps her to understand the whole of it to say, don't think that you're going to escape, Esther, just because you're the queen. Right? He gets out his Remember Vashti t-shirt, 
right? And he says, remember what happened to her? She wasn't above the law. So why do you think you would be? And the light bulb goes on for Esther. Oh, this, this decree affects me as well. For if you remain completely silent at this time, I love this verse. This is a beautiful verse. If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Right? That's the famous verse of the book of Esther 4.14. Who knows if you've been created for such a time as this. But before we get to that thought, how about the faith of Mordecai? An issue has been, the laws of the Medes and Persians cannot be changed. 15 million people are going to die. And Mordecai says, God will take care of us, right? If you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. God is going to take care of his people. He's relying more on the promises of God than even the laws of a king. He knew that that this plan would not come to fruition, that deliverance would come. The promises of God is greater than the plans of man. But he says of her, if that's the case, then you've missed your appointment, Esther. Who knows if you've been created for such a time as this. You've got to take that step of faith, Esther, in order to see if this is why God elevated you to this position. If, that's why, if this is why God's favor was upon you all those days ago or those months ago. There is no coincidence in the plan of God. There is no happenstance. There is no luck in the plan of God. There is no chance in the plan of God for her or for us. God is sovereign over all things. He controls all things. He orchestrates. He's he's working together this masterful divine orchestration of lives weaving in and out and, and people coming into living here on earth at certain times and relatives and family trees and places that we live and seven billion people, this, this grand work. And it is all in the control of His hand. Each of us have a part to play in the time given to us. It's not chance that you're living in 2015. It's not chance that you're living in Columbus, Ohio. It's not chance who your mom and dad are. It's not chance the job you work in. It's God's divine orchestration in caring for His people as He always has. And deliverance will arise if we fail to take the step of faith that God has called us to take by another way. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
You and I, God has a a plan for our lives and a flow for our lives and moments in our lives that we are called to make a, a, a divine appointment, if you would. An opportunity to arise in faith and take the, what God has given us in His favor and to, to use it for His glory. He's created good works for you and I to do that we should walk in them. So how do we balance that with what we talked about on Sunday in Romans 12.3? I say to you through the grace given to me, everyone who, who is among you, not to think of, more, think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one. Right? If we think for too long on this idea in Esther that we were created for such a time as this, it, all, it suddenly becomes all about me. I am God's man. I was created for such a time as this. And in our flesh, we will turn that into what God never intended it to be. We are to walk humbly before our God. We are to recognize that we're just instruments in His hand. Right? When you see a work of art, a beautiful table that's been created, you don't go and you praise the hammer and the saw. Oh, good job, saw. No. You praise the craftsman, the one who created it. We're just instruments in his hand. He's the conductor. The light goes on in Esther's mind. She gets it. So verse 15, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for these three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she she's, she's understands now what it is that God has given her. And she's willing to step in faith, even if it cost her her life. She comes to the moment in her in her life, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came before King Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, but if not, throw us in the fiery furnace, king. I don't care. Even if this costs me my life, I will take this step of faith. Her eyes are opened by a loving father, father figure, as he points her to understanding. Dads, that we would do that with our kids. She does the right thing. She steps out in faith. She counts the costs. She understands. She considers the cost worthy. What about you and I? It goes back to what we learned a couple weeks ago. Are we, have we counted the cost? Are we offering our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God? When we woke up this morning, did we put ourselves back on the altar because somehow we slither off all the time? We say, Lord, I'm yours. I'm an instrument in your hands. Use me as you will. God, you created me for such a time as this. You're gonna, I'm going to interact with people today. I'm going to have an opportunity to point people towards you. May I be faithful to do that. And even if it costs me everything I have, even if it costs me in my life, what we gain in Him is far greater. What we gain in Him is far greater. So the last verse, so Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther commanded him. He fasts for her. He gets everybody to fast in preparation for her to go in and see the king.
Esther didn't see her moment coming. You and I probably won't either. First Peter 3.15, always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. Always be ready, in season or out of season, for the opportunity may arise that He may call upon us. Count the cost, child of God, because He is worthy. He is. If we were to lose everything that this world could offer us, Paul calls it rubbish. To gain entrance to that feast where the joy is set before him, he endured the cross, the joy of that time when we would be in fellowship with him, it's worth it all. It's worth it all, Christian. And we give everything we have to him. Amen? The good stuff. Let's stand, let's close in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that your hand is forever active upon our lives. And you have created us for this day and for this age and in this place. And you have given us the families that we have. And you have given us opportunity, God, to point people towards you. You've made us light and salt. May we not hide our light under a bushel. May we not throw the salt to, to the road to be trampled on by men. May we not lose our saltiness. Lord, it's perverse to think that the favor of God would be for our benefit. That's the prosperity gospel that would say, oh, it's just to get us what we want. And that makes you the genie in a bottle. Father, your hand and your favor is for your glory. It's for your kingdom. And we are subjects of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that by your grace as well. So we, as a people, say, have your way with us, O God. Let us be living sacrifices before you, holy and acceptable. It's the reasonable thing to do. Keep transforming our mind, Lord, as we process through these things. Draw us unto you. God, have your way in us. In Jesus' name, amen.